0: I trust you still have your Bibles open to First Corinthians, First Corinthians, chapter one. It's our practice as a church uh, that we typically, our typical method of uh, of preaching and teaching is to go systematically through books of the Bible, and uh, that means that we pick up. This week, where we left off that last week, and we continue uh, as as we um, as the Lord leads us through that. Um, as you can tell, being in chapter one, we're at the very beginning of a uh, of a study through the book of First First Corinthians. So I do encourage you to have God's Word open in front of you so that you can follow along as we go through the text. But we will have uh, the the text up on the screen. And that's just to supplement. That's not to uh, take the place, certainly, of having a copy of God's Word open in your lap. Uh, that way, you can follow along with us. Uh, let me just ask you ask you a question. This is one of those things that that you see that um, uh, that a lot of people think about in church life and and all of that. And they and they you know everybody has the desire to see their church grow. Everybody has the desire. To see more and more people attending the church. So one of the questions that automatically comes up is, as a church, what should we do to attract people? You just file that question away in your mind. What should we as a church do to attract people? Do we need to change the things that we do? Do we need to change, you know, what, what, what would it involve? What would we need to do to attract people? And as you file that question away in your mind, I want to tell you about uh, just this past week about a, a church that I learned of. Well, because it was the pastor was going to be uh, part of a part of a conference that uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, it's a Baptist church in Florida, and they their primary method of attracting people to their church is they design their services around. Different cultural events. And when I say they design their services, they design everything. They design the, they call it a stage. They design their stage. They design their music. They design everything around some sort of a cultural theme. As I said, what we do here is we preach systematically through the text. So the text is the center of what we do. But what they do is they, they, they build it around a certain theme. Not too long ago, they had a, a whole sermon series based around the theme of the TV show that's now, I believe, off the air. Uh, praise God! Uh, but the TV show Game of Thrones. And when they built this sermon, ser- and yeah, um, when they built this sermon series around the show Game of Thrones, they they did everything. They had the whole platform, the whole stage built like a TV set, like it was. In that game of thrones to the point that even if, if you're even remotely familiar with the series, you know, game of thrones, they have these particular thrones of, I, I forget what they're called, like thrones of swords or something, iron throne is what they're called. And they had an iron throne replica in the middle of the platform. And that was what the preacher would speak from a few months before that series. They had another series on marriage and relationships. Guess what they called that one? Called it Victorious Secrets. Sounds catchy, doesn't it? But you named the series after basically um, a softcore porn lingerie industry. And I you know, I'm not saying that to get all, you know, wagging our finger at the way other folks are doing things. But when you do things like that, and when you say you open your services with uh, with the band playing covers of whatever s- latest secular pop or rock or hip hop songs complete with dancers like a, like a toned down version, hopefully toned down version of the Super Bowl halftime show. Is that what you need to do to attract people? Now, um, if you were to talk to the pastor of this church, and I've seen some interviews with him and with some others that hold to that same kind of That same kind of philosophy, their whole, their whole idea, they justify all of that by saying, look, it gets people into the church. It attracts people to the church. And if you look at their attendance numbers in the thousands, you would say, yeah, you, you have attracted people. Now maybe that's an extreme version. But even though it's an extreme version, it's not unique. There are churches all over the, all over the country that I know of. Even, I even have pastor friends who they will base sermon series around a a movie theme, including dressing up in the costumes and soundtrack covers and all of that. Can you imagine me up here preaching dressed like a Wookiee? That'd be kind of awesome, wouldn't it? except it would have the opposite effect. Nobody would be running for the doors. You know, it's easy for us to sit here and kind of wag our fingers and, and shake our heads when we hear about things like that. But why do they do it? Why do they do that? They do it for just the reason that I said, to attract people, to draw people. And those methods are very successful in attracting big crowds. That's the objective, and that's what they meet that objective. The reason that they're very successful in attracting big crowds is because what they're doing is they're playing on people's personal tastes and their preferences. What do you like? What do you enjoy? You ever heard somebody say that about a church service? Well, you know, I didn't really... I didn't really like the whatever about personal tastes and preferences. Now, before we, before we get too judgmental about these folks that do those kind of things, we need to realize that if left unchecked, most of us, if, if I was to ask you what you would design a worship service to look like, We need to realize that if left unchecked, most of us would design a worship service around our own tastes and preferences. Whether that has anything to do with dressing like a Wookiee or not. Around our own style, around our own preferences. You know, it would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, if... If we didn't have to even think along those lines, it'd be a whole lot easier if we could turn to chapter and verse in the scripture and and see where God gave us a pre-printed bulletin with the order of service, wouldn't it? It'd be a lot easier if we could just, you know, say, well, okay, this is, this is what it is, but God didn't do that. God told us what we're supposed to do, but he didn't necessarily tell us how we're supposed to do what He tells us that we're supposed to do as a church. For example, He told us to sing, didn't He? He told us to sing in Scripture, but He didn't tell us how we're supposed to sing. Now, He did give us parameters, and some of the parameters that He gave us was that we're supposed to sing hymns, spiritual songs, and psalms. So in other words, we're supposed to sing a variety he, he also makes it clear throughout many of the psalms that different variety of instrumentation is a desirable thing. It's not a, He certainly doesn't command us to play the timbrel. I don't know where you're going to find one of those. <laughs> or the lyre or the harp. But He does encourage a variety of instrumentation. So that's one example. Another example is fellowship. God has told us that we're supposed to fellowship with each other. He's He's made that replete in His Scripture. He's told us that we are supposed to fellowship with each other, but He hasn't told us necessarily how we're supposed to fellowship with each other. Now, He did give us parameters about the fellowship that we have. He said we're not to show any partiality. We're not to show favoritism, one group or one... Anything over another? He did say rich and poor, male and female, all ages, all ethnicities are supposed to fellowship together. We're not supposed to hive off into different homogenous churches or homogenous groups. No, we're supposed to be all together, fellowshipping. That's one thing. Another thing is God has told us that we're supposed to give he hasn't told us what time in the service we're supposed to give. He hasn't told us what our offering plates need to look like. He hasn't told us whether you use offering plates or a box in the back or whether you use online. He had not told us any of those things, but He did give us parameters about our giving. He said that we're supposed to give proportionally. In other words, we're supposed to give a certain regular percentage of what we make. He said that we're supposed to give sacrificially. He said that we're supposed to give privately without calling attention to what we're giving or without putting strings attached to, well, you know, it only goes to this and doesn't go to that or any of those kind of things. He's given us parameters around that. God has told us that we're supposed to be orderly in our services. He just hasn't prescribed what that order of service needs to look like. He's told us that we're supposed to gather together. He just hasn't prescribed what our gathering places need to look like. God's told us that we're supposed to pray together. But He hasn't told us, He hasn't given us a prescription of what those corporate prayers have to contain or what they have to sound like or the particular wording that we use. God has given us parameters, certain parameters around what we're supposed to do when we gather together as a church. You can think of it like guardrails. He's given us certain guardrails about what our gathered time needs to look like, but He hasn't given us all the specific details. That means that we've got all kinds of freedom when it comes to matters of style and preference. But even though that God didn't give us specifics about those things, He did get very specific about one part of our gathered time together. He got very specific about what the central focus of our gathered time together is supposed to be. He got very specific about preaching. And that's where Paul takes us in our passage this morning. Immediately after, you remember what we talked about last week, he talked about these, he addressed these divisive factions in the church and how they were, how they were pitting against each other, all these different teams that were pitting against each other. Immediately after talking about that, he addresses what the central focus of the church is supposed to be. He tackles the priority of preaching and what that preaching has to look like. See, one of the things that was causing strife in the church at Corinth, and we'll see this all throughout this letter as we as we go through it, but one of the things that was causing strife was there were different groups in the church who were who were insisting on having their way of what the church services needed, what their gathered time needed to look like. How the gifts needed to be expressed, how all these different aspects of the, of the church gathered time together needed to look, and they were basing everything on their preferences. And we see in the passage that was just before this how they were, how they were hiving around different preachers based on which ones they liked, whether it was Paul or whether it was Apollos, whether it was Peter. The problem was when they were, when they were Picking which one of those they wanted to follow, they weren't, they weren't basing that on any of the content of what they talked about. Because if they had based it on the content of what they talked about, they would have realized that they were all on Team Jesus. Now they weren't basing it on the content. They were basing, they were judging each of those men on how they performed. It was a huge issue to the church at Corinth. You know, my guy's more talented. He's a much more gifted speaker than your guy is. Well, you know what? My guy tells great stories. He'll tell good tear-jerkers. My guy speaks with with eloquence. Oh, well, my guy's funny. He tells the best jokes. My guy's passionate. He's motivating. They were gathering up around all those different kinds of preferences. And here in our passage, Paul just, hes like he dumps a bucket of cold water on all of those kinds of assessments of preaching. So what kind of preaching should a church have? The kind of preaching that looks silly to the world. Starting with the silly message that we preach. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is folly, To those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You know, I, I appreciate it when, when I stand at the back and, and y'all come through and, and sometimes folks will come through and they'll say something about the message that, that really hit them or, or really, you know, really struck them or, or or whatever. And And I really appreciate that. I've never had anybody come through and tell me, preacher, your preaching was silly today. Your preaching was foolish today. Now don't, don't try to set a precedent <laughs> doing that. Cause I don't know how I would feel about that, but that's what Paul says is the best kind of preaching. He says the best kind of preaching is foolishness. The ESV uses the word folly there. Other translations use the word foolishness. The original Greek word that's behind that is the word that we get the word moron from. Moronic preaching. Paul was saying that the best, the very best kind of preaching sounds moronic to most people. The reason it sounds moronic to most people is because to somebody whose heart has not been opened by the Spirit of God, the message of the gospel sounds absolutely crazy. Think about it. See, people like to think of themselves as basically good. People like to think, well, you know, if we just fix the economic problem or if we just fix the whatever problem or the whatever problem. You know, people at their core, they're they're basically good. That's what people like to think. But the Bible tells us that all people are born with a sin nature. And every day of our lives we act on that sin nature by committing sin. People like to think that they'll become better people if they can just learn more or get more how-to courses or take more yoga or do any of those number of things or work harder. The Bible says that we are completely incapable of fixing ourselves. The Bible tells us that even our best attempts at trying to be good ourselves are disgusting. As disgusting as filthy rags in God's sight. You know, people like to think that they're self-made, that they're rational people who will who will always make the right choices if they just have really good information and really good education. And what's the Bible say? The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone his own way. People like to think satisfaction comes from controlling your own destiny. You know, if I just, if I just get to this certain place in my career where I can control my own destiny or get to a certain financial level where I don't have to depend on people, where I can control my own destiny, then, then man, I'll, I'll have satisfaction there. The Bible says that true contentment can only come not from gaining more control, but true contentment can only come from fully yielding control to God and submitting to Christ as Lord of your life. Now, people like to think that they don't need to be saved. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that salvation only comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's Word alone, for God's glory alone. Bible says that your Creator loved you enough, even though you completely rejected Him by refusing to obey His rules or by thinking that you could obey all of His rules on your own. Even though you've rejected His love by trying to live your life in your own power and your own strength, Bible tells you that God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. Even though the only thing that you and I deserve on our own was not just physical death, but eternal death, because we have offended an eternal, all-powerful God. We have rebelled against Him. We've committed treason against our eternal Creator. The Bible tells us that Jesus, God the Son, came in the flesh that He lived a perfect life that we couldn't possibly live, that we might think that we could live, but we couldn't possibly live, and He died the death on the cross that you deserve. He died it in your place. He died it in my place as our substitute, paying for the wrath that we deserve. And when you trust Him as your Lord and Master and Savior, He comes to live in you. He comes to change you. His Holy Spirit changes you and starts to make you more and more like Christ every day. And when He saves you, the Bible tells you that you are permanently sealed with His Holy Spirit and He'll never, ever, ever let you go. When you're saved, (laughs) He doesn't promise to take away all your hurt and all your sorrow and all your grief. No, the Bible doesn't present salvation as a sales pitch so you can have your best life now. No, the Bible doesn't present salvation that way, but what God promises in salvation is that any hurt or pain or grief or sorrow that you go through will ultimately be for your good and for His glory. As Paul put it, it will be a light momentary affliction when compared to the eternal weight of glory. That's what the Bible teaches. And one day soon, the Bible teaches that, that this isn't all there is, that, that this, no matter what happens with global warming or whatever economic disaster or whatever ecological disaster, whatever anything anybody wants to say, or if meteors come and hit the earth, the Bible says that this is not it. The Bible says that one day, as a believer in, in Christ... You will experience Jesus in all of His fullness because you'll be in His presence forever. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that we will be free from pain and tears and sorrow and sickness and death and sin. One day, all of our longings, all of our longings that we have now, all of our longings will be fulfilled. You will finally be everything that you were created to be. Isn't that a beautiful message? The Gospel... The message of the gospel according to scripture. Well, it's only a beautiful message if the Holy Spirit has opened your heart to it. We're only able to say amen to that message if the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to the truth of what that is. Unless he does, it just sounds silly. Sounds like a myth story. It sounds like a fantasy. Sounds like a fairy tale. No matter how we try to market it, no matter what we do to try to attract people to that message, but no matter how silly it might sound to a lost and dying world, the gospel, that gospel is the only, the only way that people will be saved from an eternity in hell. It's the only tool that we got in our toolbox, folks, not any of the attractional stuff. The only tool that we have in our toolbox is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. This foolishness of the Gospel, the foolishness of the message preached is the only power that we have. So no matter how silly we might sound to the people around us, that's the message that we preach. That's the message that we continue to preach. That's the message that we will continue to preach as long as God gives us breath. Which brings us moves us from the silly message to the silly method. The method of preaching. Look at verses 19 through 21. <clears throat> it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, every every so often, it's like it continually, every week or so, it comes through my either my news feed or comes into my inbox. There's some new study or some rehashed old study that just reminds me, is sent to remind me that. Preaching is an outdated, ineffective methodology. That's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) And it'll say things, you know, it'll give all these studies about how people have short attention spans. I've seen things that say that people have shorter attention spans than goldfish now. Um, I don't know if we take that as an encouragement or not. But it'll talk about how people have short attention spans and they can't sit and listen to a monologue. People are used to the speed of, of technology and social media and they're used to, you know, having three or four screens flashing stuff at them all the time and, and, and all of that fast paced stuff coming at them and they can't handle sitting, listening to preaching. And for at least a generation, those of you who are in the education system, you know that for at least a generation, classroom teaching has been fast paced. It's been interactive. It's been focused on more and more on experiential learning. You know, when my mom was still teaching, I, there was, there was a thing that came out. They bought for some of the classrooms, they bought, um, these bouncy balls for kids to sit on in their classrooms. <laughs> and, If I would have been in school, I mean, I had a hard enough time in school. Teachers had a hard enough time with me in school. If I'd have had a bouncy ball to sit on, then I'd have bounced all the way through that... Through that school. But that's what the educational theory is, is talking about now that everything has to be experiential and fast paced and, and all of that. There's, there's round of tables. There's no more, no more lectures because people don't learn from monologue. They don't learn from lecture type teaching anymore. And all of these articles, all of these studies say we as a church, we've got to change with the times because people cannot learn this way. You know what? They are absolutely right about everything except changing preaching with the times. See, they're right. Standing up and using a 40- to 45-minute one-way monologue to expose an ancient 2,000-year-old text, it is an absolutely silly form of communication. Studies, good, accurate studies, show they demonstrate that people only retain somewhere between five and ten percent of the information that they receive from a lecture, from a one-way, one-way monologue. So, if we have all of that evidence on this side, all of that, uh, all of that, that, that knowledge on this side, then why don't we change it up? Why don't we start using videos and demonstrations and drama and, and dialogue and all of those kind of things to get our point across? I've, I've heard of uh, uh, there's a group of, of churches that um, really bought into all of this and they started... They completely changed their whole worship service and they now have experiential stations set up around the, the, the church or the sanctuary or wherever. And these different experiential stations, they'll go to one and they'll do something and, and basically it's designed so that they will touch and taste and hear and smell and feel what the message is supposed to be. Well, that sounds crazy to me. I think by the looks on, Most of y'all's faces, that sounds crazy to y'all, except maybe the tasting part. Maybe we could have a Kit Kat station (laughs) and somehow make that about Jesus. (laughs) That sounds crazy, but the wisdom of the world says that people retain more experiential knowledge than any other methodology. So why wouldn't we do something like that? The reason we wouldn't do something like that is because God has chosen the primary method of teaching His Word to be straightforward, monologue, exposition. Paul sums it up in verse 21 there, doesn't he? See, you can use all the finest methodology that this world can come up with to try to learn who God is and to try to learn what God has done for you. You can have experiential stations, you can have video, you can have drama, you can have all of those kind of things, but that's not the way that God has chosen to reveal Himself. He's chosen to reveal Himself to each generation through this crazy, silly methodology of preaching the Bible. Listen, <laughs> I... Um, this don't take this wrong, but I really don't expect that you're going to retain much of the content of each sermon that I preach. I would love for you know somebody to come and and recite back what what I've been preaching but that's that would be a delusion <laughs> I, I know that that we don't i don't expect that we retain a whole lot of the information that I give in preaching. But I can guarantee you this. When you sit under the regular, Spirit-led, Spirit-anointed, systematic preaching of God's Word, I can guarantee you this. You will be changed. You're not going to be changed by my oratorical... See, I can't even say the word. You're not going to be changed by my fancy talk. You're not going to be changed by all of your, all of your feels getting manipulated. You're not going to get changed by lights and smoke and songs and stories. You're not going to be changed by your head getting filled with all kinds of interesting facts. That's not what's going to change you. But you will be changed. Change. You'll be changed as the Spirit of God engrafts the preached word to the hearts of children of God. That's what happens here. See, this is a, this isn't something that we can, that we can change with sociological data. No, this is a supernatural event that happens. See, real preaching is a supernatural event given to us by God. God mysteriously takes the most humanly ineffective method of communication and He supernaturally infuses it with His power. For one thing, it's to keep those of us who do this from getting a big old fat swelled head like it's about us. This isn't about me. This is about the Spirit of God taking the Word of God, anointing it through the preaching of a man of God, and opening the people of God's heart to what He's saying. It's about His Spirit in this place. Not about me, or the effectiveness of my communication, or how well I can tap tap dance in front of him. That'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? not about me coming up with memorable stories and witty one-liners. It's about clearly doing the very best that I can to clearly communicate what this Bible says. It's about observing. It's about interpreting. It's about applying the Bible. It's not about performing well. So how are we going to see people saved? We're going to see people saved with words... That this world sounds silly, proclaimed in a way that this world sees as silly. So here's the main thing I want you to take away from this. Main thing I want you to take away from this is that God never intends for our worship services to attract people. Do you hear me? God never intends for our worship services to attract people. He intends for our lives to attract people. That's probably worth an amen, even though it hurts. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say amen. I told you about that, that black preacher that I heard preaching and he had one of those and he said, boy, I sure wish I was preaching to somebody. Now, the intent is for our lives to be the ones that attract people. See, if God required, if He relied on, if He depended on our corporate creativity to draw people to Himself, then He would have chosen Hollywood to do it. But He didn't choose Hollywood to do it, did He? No, He chose each of us as individual believers to, through the Gospel, to draw people to Himself. And you're only able to do that when you're regularly equipped in the gathering of the body through the supernatural act of gathering with your fellow believers and sitting under the systematic exposition, systematic teaching and preaching of God's Word. This is to equip us to do what we're called to do, to be attractors. Now, you should supplement the training that you get in here and the preparation that you're getting in here from you know good Sunday school teachers, small group teachers, other environments like New Life Corps. You should feed yourself with daily Bible reading and personal devotions. But all of those things only work the way God intends them to work when you're regularly gathering with God's family under the preaching of God's Word. When you're regularly engaging in this is the only way that all that other stuff works. Podcast, the live feed, I, you know, I love those things, but they're great for the sick and for the homebound, but they can never replace the gathered body. As you continue to be equipped and as you continue to grow, then your life is what's going to become the main attraction. And the way that Peter put it in his letter was he, he said that be ready to give a defense when people see the hope that is within you. See, the hope that is within you is, is displayed to other people, and they start to look at you and they say, you're, you're different. What What makes you different? What makes you have joy in the middle of a situation that the rest of us are crumbling in? What makes it so that you're not absolutely flying off the handle like the rest of us because our boss is a jerk? What what makes you so different? Well, I'm glad you asked. Be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within you. That's what's attractive. Not stage shows, not dancing girls, not any... Not Certainly not my oratory. What's attractive is when they see the gospel on display in your life. People are going to see your humility. They're going to see your selflessness. They're going to see your love. They're going to see your integrity. In other words, they will see Christ in you. And when they see Christ in you, then they're going to want what you've got. No, more specifically, they're going to want what you, who you have. And guess what? When that happens, then you begin the process of making a disciple. Follow me as I follow Christ. Introduce them to Jesus. Introduce them to your family here. Sit with them as they experience this supernatural foolishness of preaching. And as you do, we're going to get to see more and more and more of what we got to see this morning. Amen? We're not going to do it with movie sets and dancing girls and... All of that stuff. You're going to do it with the foolishness of the message preached. And your friends, your family members, your co-workers, your classmates, and your neighbors are going to see how God is changing you because of it. So that brings me to the last question. How has the preached Word Changed you? Is it evident in your life? Have you trusted Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior? Have you bowed your will to His will? Are you living more and more like Christ every day? Have you trusted Jesus as Lord, Master, and Savior of your life? Have you followed Him in baptism? Have you united with this church family in covenant membership? Well, if you haven't, then guess what? Today's the day that you can change that. Today's the day to allow this foolish method, of this foolish me- message to change you, to save you, to make you obedient to what God created you for. So will you do that this morning? I'm going to pray here in a second, and after I pray, we're going to sing a song. And, and I would just ask that however the Lord is leading you, however the Lord is changing you because of His preached Word, I'm going to ask that you respond.